The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. In the aftermath of the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, a huge pile of debris was left on ground zero. Twisted steel girders, rubble, and other wreckage which continued to smolder for five months after the attack. It was dubbed the pile by those who work there. On a May 30th, 2002, there was a significant ceremony. The last piece of steel from the World Trade Center was removed from the site. It was draped in an American flag, and that last piece of steel was recycled as the bow of the new San Antonio-class amphibious assault ship, the USS New York. And the term pile was no longer used after this. Now, the clearing of Ground Zero in New York City was essential in order to go ahead with plans for building the proposed Freedom Tower in its place. Without the clearing of that pile of smoldering rubble, the Freedom Tower, 1,776 feet tall, could never be built. And so it is also with the work of God in redemptive history. I mean, across human history, with the city that we know as Jerusalem, and in our own individual hearts spiritually. Until the wreckage that sin has left is removed, the work of God cannot proceed. The building site must be cleared, it must be cleansed, and then the building of God can be established. Biblically then, the building site is ultimately the hearts of his people. The hearts of the people of God, that's the building site. I believe also a physical Jerusalem as well, both. The building that he's building is called in Revelation 21, the New Jerusalem. A holy city, a combination then of a spiritual and physical dwelling place, where the eternal God, the holy God, will dwell with his people, his cleansed people forever. And they will see his face and he will be their God. And they will dwell in his presence forever and ever. The rubble, then, is the residue of human arrogance and defilement and sin that must be purged. It must be removed or that eternal structure cannot be built. So it is, then, that we come to Isaiah 3 and Isaiah 4. And in Isaiah 3, we see the destruction of the city of Jerusalem because of human sin. And a pile of rubble, a heap of ruins it's called in one verse. But it must be cleared so that the new Jerusalem can be built. It is a passage that speaks a word of warning to our own nation because there are many similarities spiritually between the Jerusalem that was cleansed and cleared in Isaiah 3 and our nation of the present time. And it's a word that speaks to each individual Christian, a word of warning of the need for repentance and personal faith and prayer. As I've said before, I say it again, I renew this encouragement and exhortation to you to not let there be a distance between you and Isaiah and the people that he writes about. Find yourself here. 
and you will be well. Find ground for repentance and humbling of yourself before God's mighty hand and he will lift you up. Don't keep a distance between you and the people of Jerusalem. I say that to myself and to all of us. And so we have what I call bookends of grace, just as we look at the unfolding glories of Isaiah's prophecy. We have two bookends of grace surrounded by a pile of rubble, surrounding a pile of rubble. And so bookend number one, we have Isaiah chapter two, the mountain of the Lord's temple established as chief among the mountains, raised above the hills and all nations streaming to it, a vision of glory. Bookend number two, we have Isaiah 4. The branch of the Lord established as beautiful and fruitful and glorious in Mount Zion. And a canopy of glory over Mount Zion. And there will God's cleansed and glorified people dwell forever and ever. In between, you have wreckage. You have a city destroyed because of human sin. And that's what we're looking at today. Great judgment clears the building site. Isaiah 2, which we looked at last week... All lofty, arrogant human structures are removed and the Lord alone will be exalted. Isaiah 2.17, it says, The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And then in Isaiah 3, the Lord takes away, He takes away, He removes, He clears. Do you see it? Verse 1 right away, For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah supply and support, all supply, uh, support of bread and all support of water. He's removing the supports, the supply systems. Later on in verses 18 through 20, the Lord snatches away the finery of the daughters of Zion, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces and the earrings and bracelets and veils and headdresses and ankle chains and sashes and perfume bottles and charms. Takes it away. He's clearing it. As though the building site is being cleared for a spectacular new building that will last for all eternity. That's what I see. And so, in judgment, in a terrible chapter of judgment, still, there's God's grace immediately. In chapter 4, and we'll look at it today. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity put it this way. Imagine yourself living in a house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you know these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem really to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor up there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building instead a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So that's the clearing and the adjustment and the cleansing and the rebuilding that I see here so that God can dwell with us for all eternity. Now it begins here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, with the loss of stability. The pillars, humanly speaking, are getting pulled out. They're just getting pulled out and the wreckage comes as a result. Look at verses 1 through 3. See now, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water. The hero and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of fifty and man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. These are the pillars of society, humanly speaking. Pillars are a source of support. They hold up 
buildings. These people then hold up everyday life in society. They are pillars. The daily existence by which the inhabitants of that city made their life through the world. Now, you remember the story of blind Samson, his eyes having been put out by the Philistines. And he's brought to the, to the temple of, of Dagon, the false god. And he asked the boy who's leading him by the hand, can you uh, put me at the place where there are the big pillars that support the whole building? That's got to be one of the stupidest moments in biblical history. Uh, likened only to Samson's own stupidity, when Delilah kept asking, how then can we destroy you? And he's like, well, let's toy with that question. But uh, he returns the favor here. And you he, remember, he's got his hands on the pillars that hold up the entire temple. And with awesome strength, he pushes them out. And the whole structure comes crumbling down. Thousands were killed. Last year, you remember, perhaps, a bridge in Minneapolis. Uh, the repair, the ongoing upkeep had been neglected. Perhaps it had gotten a fresh paint job every year. Looked good. But it was structurally unsound, and people died as a result because the bridge came crumbling down. And so when the pillars are removed, everything falls. And I think that's what's going on here. God is threatening the removal of all of the structural supports of Jerusalem and Judah. He starts with just the stable food supply. All supplies of food and all supplies of water. God created us needy and dependent. We have to have that steady stream of food and water. And so he's going to remove that. I believe he's speaking here of both the Assyrian and later Babylonian invasions. When the people were starving, the food supply and the water supply were destroyed and the people would, would starve. But then he goes on to talk about other pillars. And that is human beings who play certain key roles in Jewish society. They are leaders and skilled craftsmen and counselors and people who play a certain role. Well, let's start with the issue of good leaders. A godly king who rules with justice provides incredible blessings for his nation. Now, Isaiah 3 then depicts a total vacuum of leadership, the scourge of anarchy and therefore resulting instability, the removal of godly leadership. Proverbs 28.2 says, When a country is rebellious... It has many rulers, but a man of understanding and knowledge maintains order. And so he's going to remove these godly leaders, qualified men who are able to lead. They're, they're removed. They're not there. But he goes on to talk about military heroes. The hero and, and warrior, the captain of 50, the man of rank. These are all military terms and it has to do with the removal of a man who will stand in the gap at the key moment of battle and turn to battle with great courage and conviction. They're removed from Judah and Jerusalem. He's going to remove them. There won't be any at that key moment. You remember back in the day of judges, you know, when God was judging his people for sin and then he would raise up a judge. He would raise up a Jephthah or Gideon or Samson. And they would stand there, Shamgar, standing there with an ox goad. Now, it takes courage to face an army with an ox goad. But he was a courageous man. Don't know much about him. But I just know this. Any man that's going to face an army with a, all he's got is an ox goad in his hand, that's a courageous man. He's a hero. And he was able to turn the battle just from just sheer courage and conviction, standing his ground. But in this final assault from the enemies of God, Babylon in the end, there would be no hero to stand in the gap. There would be no, no courageous man to turn to battle. He'd be gone. A nation depends in times of great trial on heroes like that who step forward and lead. Reading recently about General George Washington, 
in the winter of 1776. Of course, there had been the glorious moment of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But uh, I think it's hard for us to imagine how much courage it took to put your name on that document. As someone once said, we must hang together or assuredly we will all hang separately. So it took a lot of courage and they had to have the victory. They had to have the military victory. And by the end of the year, it was looking very badly. General Washington had been thoroughly beaten in New York, barely escaped with the remnant of his army, was across uh, the Delaware River, licking his wounds and trying to hold the army together. The British were in strong control of three of the states and things looked very, very bad at that point. General Washington had lost about 90% of his army and uh, panic and despair was spreading through the, straits, uh, through the states and he wrote his private opinion that the game was almost up. But he knew that an army lives even more on morale and a sense of the certainty of victory than they do even on food. They'll go a long time without food, but if they think they're going to lose, they'll give up. And so, at Christmas time, in 1776, he crosses the Delaware, a very famous painting. He goes across, he catches the sleeping Hessians, defeats them, captures a thousand men, turns the tide of battle. Great, great, courageous hero at that particular moment. It took incredible courage to do it. In our day, I think, the soldiers who are risking their lives for the stability of Iraq are modern-day heroes. We have one in our midst every week. You, get, you need to get, get to know Scott Smiley. He's sitting back there a few pews, and I asked if I could use his name. But he's a soldier that went out to Iraq and stood his post courageously uh, week after week. But then on April 6, 2005, when facing a suicide car, car bomber in Mosul, lost his eyesight. And I think that's really where his courage took over. Because as a strong and committed Christian, he continued to be a witness and an encouragement and example to people on how to overcome great obstacles. Please get to know him. He's here today. I think he's a hero. And I think our country has been blessed again and again by men who will stand in the gap at difficult places, in difficult times, and be a hero, a captain of 50, a man of rank. But by the time this country... Jerusalem, Judah, is ready to fall. There's nobody like that. They're gone. The pillars are removed. There's no man who will stand and do that. They're all gone. And woe to that nation that runs out of heroes and warriors at the time of crisis. And that's exactly what's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem. There's no warrior, no captain of 50. They're gone. God removes these pillars. And why? Well, first and foremost, as an act of judgment, bringing the sins of Judah and Jerusalem down on their heads. Secondly, is an act of vindicating God's holiness. You can't play with my laws. God cannot be mocked. So I'm going to remove these leaders from you. And ultimately, as I see it, because I love to declare this, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, as an act of mercy to clear the sight so he can establish what will last forever. And so he removes them. And the result is anarchy. The leaders are removed, the nation staggers, the nation stumbles, the nation falls. Now, God's ordinary pattern of leadership is to raise up qualified men. He raises up mature men, he seasons them, he trains them, he prepares them to bear the burden of leadership. And yes, men. From the very beginning in Genesis 2, when God raised up Adam and he was alone, and his wife had not yet been created, he established a man as a leader, not just in his own home. But Adam, we believe from Romans 5, is the federal head of the whole human race. And so he is the leader of all of it. 
He's the head. Now, we know he sinned, and in Adam we all sinned, but he was the head. And God, therefore, established men as leaders. But in Judah and Jerusalem, the men are dead, or they're removed. All that are left are women and children and unqualified men, wicked men who shouldn't be leading anything at all. And so we have in verse 4, young children becoming rulers. I will make boys their officials. Look at it. Mere children will govern them. And whatever men there are that are left, squabble over who's going to lead based on the most ridiculous terms. Look at verse 6 and 7. Keith read it beautifully, by the way. It's really it's stunning. A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, You have a cloak. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. Is that all it takes, a cloak at that point? If you have a cloak, you can be king of the pile of ruin. But he doesn't want the job. He says, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah's falling. There's no leaders. There's no one that can step up. And the total absence of qualified male leadership results also in women ruling and children. Look at verse 12, Isaiah 3, 12. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. God has ordained men to lead. A society like this that we're describing here in Isaiah 3 has totally broken down, fallen apart. And an indicator of that in verse 12 is that there are women leading. Now, Isaiah 3, 12 is a fascinating verse for a nation like ours at this critical moment in history. About to perhaps elect a woman president for the first time. And we consider ourselves enlightened. We consider ourselves advanced. And you're somewhat of a Neanderthal if you think it's not God-blessed. That it's not a godly thing. But I have a simple question to ask Christians. What does the scripture say? Does Isaiah 3.12 support the direction of our country? Are you willing to be seen to be Neanderthal and backward and say, the Lord has established men to lead, godly qualified men. And it's not a moment of enlightenment and something we can take pride in when a woman rules the country. So, Isaiah 3.12 indicates how far it's fallen for Judah and Jerusalem. And the result is anarchy and almost total loss of societal structure when might makes right. Look at verse 5. People will oppress each other. Man man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. That's the result. Once you have anarchy, then might makes right. Whoever's the biggest bully then rules and takes over. Now, what is the root cause of all of this? Well, look at verses 8 through 11. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying His glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They've brought disaster upon themselves. Tell the righteous, it will be well with them. They will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. This, these verses describe why it's gotten like this. Why is God pulling the pillars out? Why are there no qualified men to lead? Why are, lead, why are there no heroes? Why, why are all the pillars removed? Why the supply of food and water taken? Well, 
because of defiance of Almighty God, because of violations of His law. Now, Isaiah in chapter 1 had already likened the people to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's already likened them to that. But now they say, he says they parade their sin like Sodom. They are actually proud of sin. They're proud of what they should be ashamed of. One can scarcely read these words without visualizing gay pride parades, which we have here in our own city and which we also see in Disney World and other places. They parade their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. And it's amazing that there's an indication here that it's better if they hid it. Now, we know from Scripture that there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. God's going to bring every secret out into the light of His presence. You can't hide anything. But it would be better if you did, there's the sense there, because there's a spreading contagion and corruption of sin when there's, there's pride over what we should be ashamed of. That's why. That's why. That's why it's happening. Defiant sin. And God will not be mocked. As a matter of fact, he can't be mocked. It's impossible to mock God. Really just mocking yourself. And he zeroes in on specific wickedness by the rulers. Verse 14 and 15, the Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. He's really zeroing in on leaders who have led them badly at this point. And I'll tell you, Isaiah 3 is a very, very important chapter for me in terms of the importance of leadership. How are you leading? Whatever position of leadership you may have, how are you leading? I tremble about the Supreme Court justices that, that legalized abortion in our country and led us astray. They are accountable for what they've done because leadership matters. How you lead matters. Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of His people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? Declares the Lord Almighty. These leaders are using their position to crush the poor and needy. They're using their power to rob the weak of their possessions. They've forgotten. They have forgotten that all authority comes from the throne of God. And it will go back to the throne of God. All of it. And each mayor, each councilman, each representative, each senator, each governor, each secretary of this or that, each ambassador, each cabinet member, each judge, each king, each emperor, yes, each president, will give to Almighty God a careful accounting of what they did with their leadership time. And these people, these leaders led the nation astray. They led them into sin. Now, there is a place of refuge in the middle of all this, verse 10. Just right in the middle. Tell the righteous it will be well with them. For they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. God knows how to make a distinction between the just and the unjust, between the righteous and the wicked. He knows how to do that. The principle of judgment day is always the same. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now, we Christians, we know to tremble that, at that, and then we realize that it's only by the imputed righteousness of Christ that any of us are called righteous. That uh, Isaiah 3.10 is not an, a null set, empty set, no human being meeting the criteria. There are righteous. You know how they're made righteous? By trusting in Jesus, by looking to His shed blood on the cross, by trusting that His righteousness can be yours by simple faith. I say to you, if that's you, it will be well with you. You'll enjoy the fruit of your deeds. But, verse 11, woe to the wicked. That's the message. 
In verses 16, chapter 3, verse 16, up through chapter 4, verse 1, he talks about the loss of unstable, luxurious vainglory. And it begins with the pampered daughters of Zion who are lavishing luxury on themselves. Look at verses 16 and 17. The Lord says, The women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, tripping along with mincing steps, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Therefore the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. So these arrogant women of Zion have all the tricks of the trade, it seems, for attracting men. Really seeking for lust, I think. They're fishing for lust. Not the godly love of a husband here, but there's a, a kind of a, a trafficking and, and there's, there's, there's a bait being put out and what's, what the desire is, please lust after me. They're haughty in their attitude. There's haughty airs and there's, there's a flirting with their eyes. It says in, in Proverbs 6, don't let her capture you with her eyes. So they know how to use their eyes. They know how to use jewelry to attract attention. Bells jingling on the ankles and saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And there it is. It's just look at me, focus on me, who I am. And look at the list of, of equipment needed for that. I mean, it seems to take a great deal to achieve. Verses 18 through 23, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces and earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and ankle chains and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors and linen garments and terrors and shawls. Take a deep breath after that list. It's overwhelming the amount of equipment that these daughters of Zion need. Now, God has given them an abundance of material prosperity. What did they use it for? They used it for vainglory. They used it to lavish on themselves this kind of luxury. Now, later on, in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about true beauty described by Peter. A gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. But we don't see any of that here. No, we see equipment. These daughters of Zion had forsaken true beauty, which is piety before God, and traded it away for the counterfeit kind. And therefore, God's going to take away their luxury. He's going to give them judgment instead. Verse 24, instead of fragrance... There will be a stench. Instead of a sash, you'll get a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, there's going to be baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. And instead of beauty, branding. Well, why? Well, because the fall of men, the fact that there's no heroes anymore, there's no captain of 50 and man of rank, means the protection's gone. And this kind of luxury here by the daughters of Zion can only flourish where there are men to protect. And when the men are removed, then they are vulnerable. Look at verse 25 and 26. Your men will fall by the sword. Your warriors will be dead in battle. Verse 26. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn and destitute. She will sit on the ground. So the women are helpless before the invading hordes. In they come. And the invaders will snatch away everything of value. Usually the invading army then violates the women and slaughters them or carries them away as captives to live the life of a slave in somebody else's house. The physical defenses of the city are gone and these women will suffer. And how the mighty have fallen. By the time we get to chapter 4 and verse 1, it's a whole different situation. In Isaiah 4, 1, in, the, in that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, we will eat our own food. And provide our own clothes. 
Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. These once mighty women now beg for the lowest level of existence. Seven of them willing to live together in some kind of an ad hoc harem under one guy's roof, having his name for theirs. They, they'll even pay their own way, they're willing, if, if he would just take them under his name. In that day, the disgrace of Jerusalem will be complete. So that's Isaiah 3, up to 4.1. It's a dismal picture a picture of judgment, a picture of wrath poured out on the city of the eternal king, on Jerusalem. And why? Because the leaders had led them astray and the people were corrupt and loved sin. And so God brought judgment. Oh, but redemption is drawing near. And praise God for it. You know, you have to face the bad news before the good news looks as glorious as it should. And the good news is glorious. And I mean it's infinitely more glorious than anything sin can do. Where sin abounds, grace becomes infinite. And so we praise God for it. And look what we have here. We have a gain of stable, luxurious glory. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2 through 6, look at these words. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All those who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who will assemble, assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. And over all the glory, there will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. Amen and amen. Oh, my friends, that's where we're heading. That's our future. That's a city of glory. And you know, if you read Isaiah 3 properly, you realize none of us deserves to go there. We don't deserve to be there. But God, by His grace in Christ, that's precisely where He's taking us. And it begins as it should with a focus on the branch of the Lord. There's going to be this branch of the Lord. Let's say His name. It's Jesus Christ. His name is Christ, and He is the branch of the Lord. And the image here is of a tree, a flourishing tree that's been cut down. And there's nothing left but a stump. And we get that in Isaiah 6, we get it again in Isaiah 11. The picture of a stump, it's the people of God. But from it springs forth a shoot, a green shoot. And from that branch comes all life. And the shoot, the branch, is Jesus. And all of us live in Him, or we don't live at all. And so the people of God are chopped down like a, like a tree, but out from it comes this branch. Jeremiah speaks of the branch. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Can I just, I think... With, with humility and with reverence, insert one little word, because it's understood. The Lord is our righteousness. That's Jesus' name. And we have no righteousness apart from Jesus. 
And we must have righteousness to dwell in that city that he's describing here. And the branch is our righteousness. I am the vine, shifting the image a little bit. I am the vine, Jesus said, and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you're dead. But in me, says the branch, you can live forever and ever. The branch is Jesus, and he comes. And he's going to emerge, and he will be beautiful, and he will be glorious. Now, like the Jews after Judgment Day, there's no beauty or majesty naturally in him. And especially not, my friends, when he's dying on the cross under the wrath of God. Isaiah 53, much later in this book, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was under the judgment of God. He was under the wrath of God. He was accursed for us. And why? Because he was our substitute. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. To be Isaiah 3 for us. To be disgusting, wretched, Sodom-like sin for us. He made him to be sin for us so that in him we might be pure as the driven snow. That we might be seen to be righteous. Oh, look to Christ. I don't know your hearts. I don't know what you're trusting in. But if you're trusting in anything but Jesus and his shed blood on the cross, you are lost. Look to Christ. Trust in him. Say, Lord Jesus, be my righteousness. Let your resurrection be my resurrection. I trust in you. And if that's you, if God's speaking to your heart right now, come and talk to me after the service or go through that door and talk to the brothers and sisters who are going to be in the parlor. Say, I want to know Jesus. I I think I came to know him this morning. I need to know more about that life. I want to be in Christ. Don't put it off. Okay, so there's a glory in Jesus' dead on the cross. Oh, but that future glory that we're looking at here... It's going to be beautiful and it's going to be glorious. The branch is going to be beautiful and glorious and so will the city. So will be the city that he builds where we will dwell forever and ever. Oh, you can't even imagine the ravishing beauties that will hit your eye at that point. How how fantastic it's going to be. How beautiful the new Jerusalem will be. Matthew 24, 30. They will see the Son of Man coming. On the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He's going to be glorious in that day and beautiful. Revelation 21, 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. Beautiful and glorious. And he's going to make the land fruitful. Oh, it's going to be lush. Eden would be jealous of how beautiful the new earth's going to be. It's going to be lush. Look at verse 2. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Now, the promised land was meant to be lush. It was meant to be a land flowing with milk and honey. And it was when they came into it. But when they got done with it, it was a desert under the judgment of God. You look at satellite photos of Palestine today. Does it look like a lush Garden of Eden to you? It looks like Arizona. Not meaning to insult anybody from Arizona, but it looks dry. Where is the land flowing with milk and honey? A land blessed. The, the, the ground opens up its mouth to drink in the early and latter rains. Where is that? It's under the judgment of God that land is. It's a desert. And so the, pl- the, the lush land becomes a desert. But we'll find out later in Isaiah. He can turn it back again. 
He can go from desert back to, back to Eden again. He can make it lush again, and he will. The fruit of the land is going to be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. And then there's this remnant. Look at verse 2. The fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Verse 3. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem. Remain equals remnant. This is the remnant, friends. The remnant of the Jews. The lush paradise will be the home of the remnant, the survivors in Israel. They are recorded in God's book, it says. Those who are recorded in God's book. Do you hear overtones of Romans 9 through 11 here? Concerning God's sovereign election of some to be saved. His predestination of them and His protection of them, though they don't deserve it. His protection of them. And so, today, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Romans 11. So there's that remnant chosen and written in God's book and protected. He keeps them safe. Though they deserve wrath, yet they will have mercy and they will have grace. And they will live with Him forever and ever. And so, they must be cleansed. Just because they're predestined, just because they're elect, just because they're the remnant, doesn't mean they're not sinful. Oh, they're sinful. Look at verse 4. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. And so God will cleanse us. And we will be pure. And we will be made holy. And we will be radiant. Jesus said, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. We will be beautiful and glorious like Jesus is. He will cleanse us and make us pure. And then at last, the dwelling of God will be with his people. Look at verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over all the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. So Isaiah finishes by recording the vision of God's holy habitation with his people in a cleaned up a perfect Jerusalem. A cleansed Jerusalem. It's a strong Hebrew word, by the way. The Lord will create. Reminds me back of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So at the beginning of eternity, He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And it's going to take the creative power of God to do it. He's going to create it. And he's going to create a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Doesn't this harken back to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that traveled with the people of God? And it was a picture of his provision, a picture of his protection. Boy, if any enemy came, like the, the, the chariots from Pharaoh, the pillar gets there between the enemy and the people of God. Oh, you can't take the pillar on. You'll lose. And some of the Egyptians came to that realization. God is fighting for the Israelites against us. Let's get away from them. Too late. They're already in the Red Sea. Because God is powerful. He's a pillar to protect His people and to guide them and lead them. Well, to lead them where? To the promised land. But now it's no longer a movable pillar. It's a canopy. It's a cloud of, of, of uh, protection and, and uh, fire of glory. Reminiscent of, of Mount Sinai when God comes down with his, his presence. And then when the tabernacle was built as a dwelling place for God. And God came in with the Shekinah glory. That means the dwelling glory. He comes and dwells with his people. And then when Solomon built the temple and the glory of God came and filled it. The place where God would dwell with his people. Those are all just pictures. Solomon knew it. 
Will God really dwell on earth? Heaven, even the highest heavens can't contain you. How much less a, 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 a structure I've built with my own hands. We raise money for it. No, no, no. God will dwell in a place he builds with his hands. A new Jerusalem comes down from heaven prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Comes down made ready by Christ. And he's made it ready with his own power. And then at last, the people of God will dwell with him. And so God's going to marry Jerusalem. He's going to marry Jerusalem. That canopy, it's like a chuppah, which the Jewish couples stand under for a wedding ceremony. It's going to be a wedding ceremony. So it says in Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And then again, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heavens and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. That's God's voice. (laughs) A loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he will live with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Oh, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. That's what he wants. That's what you want, isn't it? It's what I want. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and bring it. Clean this place up. Get rid of the rubble. Clear the building site and build this place. So that we can dwell with you forever and ever. Verse 6, it will be a shelter and a shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. A refuge and hiding place from God's wrath and judgment. You'll be safe there forever and ever. Application, come to Christ. I've already told you that. Come to Christ. Flee to Christ. You can't survive judgment day without it. You can't escape. Even if your sin isn't paraded like Sodom, but hidden in the secrets of your life, God knows it. There's only one refuge, and that's the cross of Christ. Flee to him. Secondly, pray for our nation. Do you not see? I mean, when you read Isaiah 3, do you not see it? We are much like this. We lack godly, strong men to be leaders. We have people in our midst who brazenly celebrate sin and parade it like Sodom. We have poor in our midst, and we don't seem to care about them the way God would have us care for them. We need national and personal repentance. Our food supply is not as secure as we might think. Have you noticed the ever-escalating prices at Kroger's or Food Line or wherever you go? Is there an end in sight? I think it's interesting how some of these these, uh, uh, supermarkets are are giving you like money off on your gas. (laughs) I think there's an incredible link between the two. So I'm grateful for that, I guess. But I just wonder, where, where, do the, where is the end in sight? We are vulnerable, friends. Most of our food comes from a thousand miles away. We should not arrogantly think that life will forever continue as it always has, that we've already always known it. We need to repent. We need to pray. We need to humble ourselves. Thirdly, thank God for qualified, godly leaders and skilled craftsmen alike, for heroes. Thank God for them. If there's still any in our culture, which there are, thank God for them. Pray for them that they would be faithful to what God's called them to do and ask God to protect them from falling into sin and leading people wrongly. Fourthly, men, seek to be godly leaders that God wants you to be. First over your homes. Lead your homes spiritually. Lead them well. And if God gives you a wider scope of leadership, be faithful to do it, knowing you're going to give God an account for what you do. And women, 
Let me read the First Peter 3 passage I alluded to. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair or the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God made themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Don't get your view of beauty from Cosmo magazine. It's not there. There are some incredibly beautiful older women in this church who I don't think the editors of magazines would put their photo on the cover of a magazine. I think they ought to, but they won't because they have a perverted view of beauty. I see them as beautiful because they've been walking with Jesus for decades. That's a view of beauty that I embrace. That's a view of beauty I want to see in my daughters. I do see in them and in my wife. That's true beauty. I'm not speaking against jewelry. There is the positive use of jewelry in the Bible. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is where does your beauty come from? And when you get dressed, are you seeking like these sinful daughters of Zion to allure, to entice, to lust? Is that your motive? Dress before Jesus and you'll be fine. To stand before Jesus and dress in front of Him. He's your true husband. Dress in front of Him. And sixthly, ask God to purify your heart and your life. Fire burns through this passage. It's been burning in my heart all week. The fire of the judgment of God. Ask God, therefore, to search out the chaff in your life. There is some there. Let's say, oh God, show it to me. Purify me. Make me ready for fruitful service on earth and eternal joy and reward in heaven. See if there's any offensive way in me. Any yearning for worldly luxury. Any yearning for worldly power. Any yearning for worldly beauty. Ask God to purify you with the fire of the Holy Spirit and wash you clean with the water of His Word. Repent. And pray for our nation to repent. And finally, look forward to our glorious wedding day. Look forward to dwelling in the new Jerusalem. I can't wait. And like Paul, happy to serve here as long as God wills. But I'm looking forward to this day when God will dwell with His people in a display of glory we can't even describe. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.